Hi, this is Smriti Kirvanandan, your host for Health Forward Podcast. One of the most important things you can do for yourself is to take care of your health. Your road to discovering an all-inclusive, empathetic, and innovative healthcare ecosystem starts right now. Opening this episode with a quote. What mental health needs is more sunlight, more candor, and more unshamed conversations. In an era where mental health concerns have taken the center stage, organizations like the Jet Foundation have been instrumental in generating awareness and support for young individuals struggling with mental health issues. In this exclusive interview, I had the privilege of speaking with John McPhee, CEO of Jet Foundation, to gain insights into their efforts to address mental health challenges among teens in the United States. John, welcome to Health Forward. Such a pleasure to have you here. Thank you so much for having me on. John, you converted your experience into a powerful journey to help others. Share with us a bit more about this. Yes, well, thank you uh, for the opportunity to to share my story and to talk about the Jed Foundation. I uh, came to this work really through my life journey. When I was a young adult, I struggled with, um, looking back, I now recognize it as, as depression and anxiety and even some problem drinking. I struggled, especially during my college years where I uh, wound up failing out of school and uh, needing to work to get back into school and to, uh, and to address some of the issues that I was dealing with. And during that time, it was the support of caring adults, administrators, coaches, family that really, uh, that really helped me get back up on my feet. And that's a big part of my work today and reason for my work today with the Jed Foundation to uh, help support the mental health of teens and young adults. Thank you, John. It's interesting and also humbling to hear you being vulnerable. I think it's important for all of us to understand that we all go through these struggles, but it's even more inspirational to see that you've converted your own story into something to help others. Thank you for doing what you're doing. Can you provide an overview of the current mental health landscape in the U.S. and the challenges individuals are facing? I know 21% of at least the teens are facing depression and anxiety, and I'm not even sure if the numbers are low. Yes, that's right, unfortunately. So, you know, the Surgeon General has actually issued an advisory for youth mental health, also issued an advisory for all of us around loneliness and isolation, and even issued a third advisory about the impact of uh, social media. And the data from many sources are showing that rates of depression and anxiety and suicidal thoughts and suicidal behaviors are uh, all-time highs or or near all-time highs. In fact, the CDC just released data that showed that in 2022, this is provisional data, in 2022, the suicide rate uh, in the United States reached an all-time high. There are a lot of factors at play. We have uh, emerging mental illness and mental illness affecting at least one out of five of us every year. But there are also a lot of macro environmental stressors from COVID, loss, grief, traumas, racism, school shootings, and, and sort of an existential threat or crisis even around things that are happening in the world. And, and so all of this is creating a, a sort of storm where we have very high rates of anxiety, depression, and, and stress. There, there are some silver linings and positives, I, I would say, and I want to comment on. One is actually that that latest suicide data that I cited did show an 8% decrease in suicides among young people aged 10 to 24. And there's a lot of work and activity happening to support the mental health of teens and young adults, including by the Jed Foundation. So we're we're heartened to, to see that. Also, we are 
in general, more comfortable talking about our mental health. And I think COVID did help with that. You know, everyone was on lockdown. Everyone was experiencing incredibly high levels of stress. And we come out of that more willing to talk about mental health and more willing to, to seek help and to give help to others. So I think that those are, those are some positives uh, in this situation. Yeah, it's interesting. It sounds like, I mean, obviously the pandemic had accelerated some of these issues, but in your perspective, you do see that these issues were existent and it's just, you know, kind of resurfaced because people are much more comfortable given the pandemic. That's right. I mean, we, we've seen the trends, uh, rates of depression, anxiety, um, and, and suicidal behavior and ideation all increasing um, since about 2010, 2011, right? So it was about that time that the, the trends all started to change. A lot of people look at that period of time and, and you know, theorize that's when the internet met the phone. And so that's a potential driver in, in terms of a, of a change that, that led to this. And I, I think that that very well may be, may be a contributor. Mental health is one of the you know, key issues of, of the day for us today. And there's a lot of things that we can do to support one another, to support young people, and also to strengthen our system. Um, we have a shortage of mental health care clinicians. Um, we have a lot of people who are underinsured or not insured. And even those that are trying to get mental health care often have to wait a long time to get it. So there are, there are structural things we need to do to improve our system in addition to you know, continuing to build on uh, what we've started with a, uh, a cultural shift where people understand that mental health is part of our physical health. Right. Now, that's a, that's a brilliant point about the cultural and uh, really making sure that we normalize talking about mental health as much as we talk about our physical health. So suicide rates have been increasing in various age groups, John, as you would know. How does your organization work to prevent suicide and provide resources for those at risk? Yeah, so the Jed Foundation is a nonprofit focused on teen and young adult mental health. Thirteen to thirty-year-olds are really the core, the core group that we we are beneficiaries, and much of our work is in schools because schools are the real-life systems where young people are, and so that's a place where we can make that environment uh, safer. Mm -hmm. We can work to make it a culture of caring a place where there's no wrong door, where young people will learn skills to navigate mental health challenges, where they can be noticed if they're struggling and connected to mental health care by that, by that safety net that a school can provide. So what the Jed Foundation does is we work with pre-K through 12 school districts in a partnership with the Superintendents Association. We work with individual high schools and we work with individual colleges and universities. And in every case, we help them set up a team to oversee mental health planning, we survey the students and we look at all the policies and programs and systems and culture that support mental health and, and identify and get those who need care to, to care. And we help create an action plan and we help advise the schools as they implement that plan to strengthen their mental health safety net. And today we're doing this with many hundreds of schools all over the country representing you know, some five or six million students. No, that's incredible. So do you see any challenges or resistance from any schools? And if so, what are they? And then what is your advice for schools that are actually resistant to be doing this? Yeah. So first, I would say to school leaders and to families, caregivers, students, right? Schools and school systems should have a plan for how they're supporting student mental health, a written plan. And it should be something that is uh, openly shared with their community. And, and many schools don't. Um, and that's what we help them do. So resistance can come in, in different forms. You know, one is that 
schools are just so overstretched and the people that work in schools are so overstretched. A number of people have uh, resigned and they're just short staffed. And so it's just a sense of like they can't they can't do anymore, you know, is is a point of resistance. Also, the success of these kinds of initiatives really depends on the leadership. The leadership needs to be committed to it. And if they are, great things can happen. And if they're not, then, you know, mental health initiatives are not are not going to take hold the way that they the way that they could. But I will say that over the years, we have seen uh, much higher willingness uh, from schools and school leaders to engage in this work and a much higher recognition that supporting student mental health needs to be one of the core priorities of the of the school. So I know we touched on this a little bit, uh, but, you know, the rising rates of anxiety and depression, if you had to break it down into the strategies and tactics, how does the JET Foundation support mental health on campuses? Yes. So we we think about our work through two um, two approaches. One is to the individual and education and campaigns to uh, college students, young adults, teens, and the, the older adults uh, and caregivers around them around how do we take care of our own mental health? What does self-care look like? Um, how do we notice if we're struggling, we need to get help? And how do we, we uh, what do we do if we're worried about someone else? So we do a number of campaigns. Um, for example, Seize the Awkward is a, is a rather large campaign, I think a very powerful campaign that uh, the Jed Foundation does with the American Foundation for Suicide Prevention and Ad Council that's reaching many millions of uh, young adults. And the message really is sort of, you know, when the world isn't listening or you feel like the world isn't listening, uh, you know, be the one who does. And so it's really encouraging young adults to be there for each other, to check in, to make sure they're, that their friends are okay, okay? Um, and to give them guidance about how to support that friend and when to go get uh, care from a from an older adult. So this kind of culture change, change um, and education about mental health on an individual level is a very big part of our work. But then we're also working to strengthen the environment that that uh, young people are in and young adults, so that they're in uh, what we like to call communities of caring. Their schools, it could be their employers, um, to make sure that these are places where it's okay not to be okay. People know how to seek help and where, you know, where to seek help. Um, and, uh, and so those are really the two approaches, if that makes sense. We come at the individual level and the institutional level, because it really takes both. It takes a village. It takes the village to, to support teen and young adult mental health. No, it makes complete sense. I think it's a very complicated topic. And I know we have a very high level, simple conversation about this just to address it. Yes. Uh, but I, I agree that uh, it's such a complicated topic that individual and even sometimes even family efforts are not sufficient enough. It requires a whole ecosystem to really make someone feel uh, normal and belonged and to really sustain them. So uh, that's incredible, John. Another part of the JET Foundation's work is meeting young people where they are. How do you see social media and metaverse impacting the mental health of young individuals? And what role can educational institutions and other stakeholders play in preparing students and, of course, parents? Yeah. So, you know, the the Internet, the metaverse, social media, gaming. I mean, this is where young people spend an enormous amount of time. And I think it's important that we recognize that, you know, this is the new world and it does have it does have benefits, but it also has risks. The Surgeon General's advisory about social media was very powerful. And uh, we at Jed think um, the right framing. So what he said essentially was that 
there are risks, you know, that we don't fully understand associated with social media. So we need to take a safety first approach while we're learning and while we're, we're figuring this all out. And we certainly uh, agree with that. I would direct listeners to a report about the metaverse um, and how and whether the metaverse uh, could possibly be good for mental health that the Jed Foundation and the organization Raising Good Gamers produced uh, in partnership with the Children's Mental Health Alliance from Morgan Stanley. And what we did in that report is we created a set of rights, almost like a bill of rights, if you will, that youth are entitled to online and in places like the metaverse. And this includes safety, right? So inclusive, supportive spaces where their psychological safety is prioritized and protected, uh, that these spaces um, promote understanding. And that means that all the products and spaces need to say up front, like what content is not allowed? What are the what are the guiding principles and procedures for reporting offensive content and actions? Mental health should be promoted in these spaces and support should be provided. So developers in partnership with mental health experts should develop accurate evidence-based tools and and resources and referrals. Um, And it's really important to promote inclusion and belonging. Young people should feel the freedom to be themselves in these spaces. Privacy is critical. They need to have control and ownership of their own data and privacy. And then we also want to see young people with with control over their creativity. So with those rights in mind, you know, what should educators do? What should caregivers do? It really takes all of us, right? We all, uh, and people in these roles around young people today need to understand these technologies. They need to, you know, understand the world that young people are operating in. And together as uh, stakeholders, we need to um, talk to young people about healthy use, but we also need to make demands of our policymakers. It's really important that policymakers and regulators are providing clear guidance and incentives so that these environments are safe. They do not take advantage of young people and that, you know, there's transparency around what the, what data they have and what it's saying about uh, safety and potential harms, just really being transparent, safe and supportive places. We as a society need to recognize that many of these online spaces are commercial enterprises that are trying to maximize profit. And I don't say that as a criticism. I just say that as a point of fact. They're trying to maximize profit. Therefore, they're trying to maximize engagement um, and advertising sales. And that can be at odds with what's in the best interest of a young person. And we need to reconcile those things, especially as it relates to, to youth today. You know, uh, what's really triggering my mind is, you know, we speak a lot about ethical AI and responsible AI. And when designing technology or making innovations, I think what we should also have on the table as a stakeholder from a behavioral health perspective, really talking about the implications and the outcomes for kids and adults, and then making a conscious decision that is this technology even worth being introduced? So is this a platform that needs to be released? I know it's a dual question. There's obviously business and profitability and other benefits. But I think as mental health has been a very silent pandemic, at least in the US, maybe even eventually globally, I think these are considerations and has to be part of the ethics operating system as well. So it's fascinating to see and hear your thought process around this. Yes, I I, I agree. And a really important point that's brought up frequently is that online spaces often create connectedness and a sense of belonging for young people and often young people who may be marginalized. For example, LGBTQ youth may find community and connection online that's very, very supportive and protective for them. And and that's certainly true. I think 
that as we think this through and we look to protect those kind of spaces, you know, there's there's room here to think about, well, who's the host of those spaces and what's the purpose for those spaces? Are they money making spaces? Are they sort of safe user led spaces? You know, these are all all the kinds of things that need to be really, you know, sort of thought through and need to be transparent, you know, as we as we go forward. We should know what kind of spaces we're in and uh, and who's running them and, and for what purpose they're running them. Absolutely. You know, uh, as as I hear you speak, the first thought that came to my mind is, you know, we have Fitbit and Apple and everything else that can track our physical health. Have you come across a technology that can potentially predict upcoming anxiety or depression or, you know, detective and patterns to prevent people from, you know, taking uh, extreme actions such as even suicide? Yes. So there's a lot of work happening in this space and, and I think a lot of promise around these technologies. So, you know, for example, there are many companies and entrepreneurs working on this. So, but, you know, one example is that there is an app that um, I think it's called Health Rhythms and we can fact check that. But I think it's called Health Rhythms that is deployed between a patient and their caregiver. And this is typically a patient who uh, is known to have mental illness. Mm -hmm. And by using technology, uh, a watch, et cetera, and looking at how they're sleeping and how much they're walking, and sort of the, you know, the normal pattern of their life, this technology actually can pick up whether the person is entering into a manic episode or potentially a psychotic episode well before they know it themselves or their clinician knows it and can send a notice, you know, to the patient and, and to the clinician that they should get together and, and take a look at what might be going on. So that's one example. And that's an example where both patient mm-hmm. and, and clinician agree to do this. But I think there's a lot of opportunity in this space to help with mental health diagnosis and support. Again, it needs to be transparent. You know, people need to know what the what the technology is doing, but there's a lot of promise. Absolutely. Thanks, John, for sharing that. The stigma around mental health still persists. How does your organization work to reduce stigma and promote open conversations about mental well-being? Through culture change, through through campaigns. So I mentioned the Seize the Awkward campaign, which is a campaign around creating and catalyzing conversations around mental health. But we also work with the entertainment industry, organizations like Viacom. We've had a long, great partnership helping organizations and entertainers and content creators look at how they represent mental health uh, and incorporate mental health so that the way that it is represented in media, in entertainment and in culture is authentic and very real and, and helps normalize it. So we're doing, a, we're doing a lot in that space. The other thing I would say about stigma is It's important, especially with young people, that we are clear what we mean by stigma or what we're trying to address. Stigma means a mark of disgrace, right? It's the shame that's associated with with a mental illness, um, and it can be structural and at a society level and and, and at an individual level. And stigma is incredibly important. But among young people today, we are seeing some attitude and behavioral barriers to help seeking and help giving around mental health that I would say are adjacent to stigma. So these are things like skepticism that help growing mistrust of older adults and institutions, not wanting to get in trouble, not wanting their friends to get in trouble. You know, these these kinds of things are relevant barriers today with young people that are a little different than stigma. And so it's really important that we're talking to young people. They're part of the process, creating these kinds of campaigns, because we shouldn't assume as older adults, you know, what 
what's on their mind and what's holding them back. We need, we need them to, to let us know, and then we can build campaigns and education around that to, to be effective and create more conversations around mental health. Yeah, it's incredible, John. Um, I'm even curious to know, and you know, I have young nieces and nephews, and I often worry because I do hear stories. Um, where, what do you think is the main reason? I know social media plays a factor. Um, I know magazines and exposure to video games plays a factor. But in your collection of data, um, where does the role of, say, social economic factors or a healthy home, like what are the three main reasons do you think this is an issue for young people? Yes. So I'll start with, with the social media and then go into the socioeconomic, the social determinants of mental health, which are incredibly important. So I part, part of my answer is simply subjective. Right. I've been doing this for 12 years <laughs> and trying, assimilating things. So, you know, part, part of this is theory. But I think we move too quickly to blame social media, uh, you know, or put that as the label. When the Internet met the phone, a few things happened. One is that we started to get so much information in real time, more information than our brain and certainly young brains could handle. Mm -hmm. And that was a huge shift. And a lot of that information is just simply negative. It is more negative than what's actually happening in the world because people are trying to sell ads and you know negative news gets more attention than good news. So young people and all of us are being bombarded by information daily that is more than we can handle and is more negative than the reality and it's scary and i think that that's a significant part of the problem then as our screen time increased our face-to-face time with friends and family family dinners dating has decreased a lot of you know sort of interpersonal in-person time has decreased our sleep has worsened our time outside has gone down so it's more than just you know, the time spent on a particular social media app, a lot of things changed in this, in this sort of, you know, uh, revolution over the last 13 years. And I, I personally believe all of it is is relevant to, to what's going on. The social determinants of health, Boston University is, you know, starting to refer to, to them as the commercial determinants of health. I like that because commercial mm-hmm. forces are, are really at play here, are incredibly important. So financial insecurity, lack of health care, uh, food insecurity, um, food deserts, and and not having access to nutritious foods, being in environments where you just have less opportunity for connection to others, et cetera, play a huge role in our in our mental health. And these things are incredibly inequitable uh, in our country. And and COVID, you know, uh, showed us showed us a lot of that. But I'm really glad that you bring this up because um, things like minimum wage, access to to healthcare, affordable housing. These are mental health uh, initiatives. And and without them, these are the kinds of things that really do compromise uh, lots of things, but including our mental health. The fact that one cannot be on social security or one cannot make minimum wage and know that they're going to have safe, secure housing uh, because those things don't match up, you know, uh, is a, is a, is a travesty, I, I believe. And, and a big part of what's happening with our mental health crisis. The the other uh, thing that's important that we at least name related to mental health and suicide prevention is firearm ownership. And I'm I'm not trying to comment about firearm ownership. People have a right to, to own firearms, but we have so many firearms that as firearm ownership has gone up, that's part of what's driving the suicide rate 
going up. And so it is really important that safe storage and safe storage in homes and, you know, procedures like securing firearms or getting firearms out of the house if somebody is struggling with their mental health, you know, these kinds of initiatives are an important part of uh, the necessary solution to reduce suicide in this country. Uh, Thank you, John. I think the underlying core factor that I'm hearing is how do we create a society and maybe even a world where everyone can live with basic dignity? And that can start dismantling some of our significant issues, which is food insecurity, mental health crisis, and much more. I wholeheartedly agree. And I I think, you know, for years, we have talked about very important things like uh, connectedness and belonging and addressing isolation and addressing loneliness. And, And those are incredibly important. But now, appropriately, we're talking more about things like dignity, as you noted, and in purpose and meaning making, and what is a life worth living. And and I think that these are really, really important concepts that I'm I'm really excited that, you know, being talked about more and more in the context of mental health and, and what a healthy, what a healthy society looks like. So looking ahead, John, what is the future of Jet Foundation? How do you envision your work contributing to a larger goal of creating an innovative, equitable, and all-inclusive healthcare ecosystem? Yeah, so our primary focus is on school systems and schools and making sure that schools have mental health, best practice mental health approaches implemented. And so the Jet Foundation, right now we work with hundreds and hundreds of schools, but what I see for the future is that we'll continue to scale that work. We'll work with more and more schools, more and more districts. And what we're trying to do is really create a tipping point where we all expect students, families, communities, school boards, et cetera. We all prioritize student mental health and that that's baked into how schools do their work and it's resourced, right? And it's, and it's properly resourced a norm. And that's what we at the Jed Foundation are working towards. So this brings us to our last question. Three takeaways for the future of health. What would that be? So I would say one is the future of health is that mental health is health, right? Mental health and physical health are the same. We need to continue to push that. Mental, uh, the Biden administration just took actions on mental health parity. So that needs to continue. And I believe it will continue so that our framing is that mental health is health. Second is all of this digital innovation is very, very encouraging. We have a lot of telebehavioral health companies, digital behavioral health platforms that are providing new levels of access to care very exciting, very promising, but we need evaluation standards. And I think regulators have to set them because it's very, very difficult to know which of these platforms is working, which one isn't. And we want to make sure the most effective ones are the ones that emerge, not just the best marketers among these kinds of companies. So I think there's a a lot of work to do there, a lot of exciting work. Academia needs to play a role. Uh, Government needs to play a role and these entrepreneurs and innovators as well. Third area, I would say, is about our system, access to care. We need more Americans to have access to mental health care, uh, culturally competent, affordable mental health care. And so we've got to just continue to strengthen our, our system over time. This is a big part of the structural barriers to access to care in our system are so entrenched. It's almost like they're the goal is not to have access to care. So this is this is the third category, I would say, where we simply need as a society to make significant progress over the coming years. John, thank you so much, Juan, for the work you do, for your time and all your insights. It was such a pleasure to have you part of Health Forward. Thank you so much. Thank you for listening. This is Health Forward Podcast, and I'm your host, Smriti Kirbanandi.